coming live from around the world by the looks of it. So this is the Grassfed Exchange's first online webinars. These are what we're calling the hallway conversations. And so the idea was we couldn't get together for the conference, but what we enjoy the most about the conferences and, and don't be offended is not the speakers, but it's actually meeting each other in the hallway. <laughs> I always feel bad saying that, but yeah, that's how I feel. So we're excited to, um, oh, wow, bring a um, group of extraordinary pair together. Stephen, why do I need glasses? You don't have any. So, uh, I don't have any, no, not yet, but I might need to. Um, as, yeah, so you can see there's the chat option at the bottom. There's also a Q&A. And if you're joining us live on Facebook, um, please ask questions. Um, oh, everyone else has got, oh, they actually have really cool glasses too, especially <laughs> Brittany's, I like hers. <laughs> um, yeah, please ask your questions and we'll pass it along. So I thought what we would do is allow everybody like three to five minutes just to introduce themselves and... Uh, talk a little bit about their FIRE experience and what's brought us here today. Um, obviously, FIRE is, I, I, I'm going to try and avoid the hot topic puns. It's going to be really hard, I know. Um, but we need to recognize, obviously, that uh, California is still on FIRE. South America is on FIRE. There are FIRES all across the world right now, and people are being impacted from their homes to their livelihoods. And this conversation comes out of a deep respect for that. And also, when is a good time to talk about this? There's never a good time, except we've got to start talking about it and start reframing um, our concepts around fire. So my name's Nicole Masters. I'm an agroecologist. I'm going to try and do less of the talking and allow everyone else to talk. Um, but yeah, shall we, do we want to do a quick introduction or let's just go for it? Do your three to five minutes. Three to five. Um, um, all right. Charles, I'm gonna hand it over to you to introduce yourself, if you're happy to do that. Absolutely, you can hear me okay? Yep. Uh, obviously, uh, by the accents, not far from where Nicole lives, uh, I'm from Australia, Southern Australia. Um, we manage a few thousand acres, grassland, grassy woodland forest. Uh, for about 10 years, I was, regional fire captain when we had a bad fire bug. So I've managed lots of fires as well as fighting national park fires. Uh, but recently, or in the last eight years, I've been working with a senior Aboriginal elder uh, and running workshops here so we can learn uh, their ancient skills. So the fact is Australia is a continent adapted to fire. Nearly 70% of our vegetation uh, the seas and proper gills are germinated by uh, the uh, heat or the 20-odd uh, chemicals in smoke. Um, but last summer and yours this, this year, as we move into the Anthropocene, we know now things have gone to another level. Uh, in Australia's case, what exacerbated our vulnerability was that Underneath our forests and grasslands, we had enormous amounts of microhousal fungi and bad grazing management and clearing. Then pets and um, foxes, etc. Uh, we've lost the animals that spread that fungus widely through Australia, which are the diggy marsupials, little animals like betongs and voilies and and bandicoots and things. So. <laughs> 
that's the sort of uh, double problem we've got. So in my view, fire can be a very constructive, regenerative tool. Uh, and particularly that which the Aboriginals have had in this continent for over 60,000 years of practice and knowledge. And so I'll be touching on that later. Um, we know constructively used at the right time of day and year, it can regenerate native shrubs, trees, grasses, etc., as well as putting biochar, good charcoal into the ground and regenerating uh, conditions for the microhazel fungi to come back. Uh, and rehydrate the soils, uh, as well as reducing fuel loads. So the final point I would make, uh, and I've noticed with National Parks and other authorities, they do a, what we call a prescribed or reduction burn, but it's got to be to suit their, their activity. Uh, if you're on country, like an Indigenous person or a farmer, you can burn whenever is the most suitable time. And I think that's another crucial point. Uh, that the Indigenous people are so good at. They'll drop a match when they ever feel it's right and, and we sh we're trying to learn to do the same. So it's probably enough for me, I think, Nicole, but that's a broad sweeping summary of it. And I've got a few photos. I don't know if they're coming through that shows some of the Indigenous people I work with, but I think the pictures will tell the story there with our workshops as well. Mm -hmm. We're just trying to work out this technological glitch. So for now, I think if, if Glenn, if you would, wouldn't, Mind. Um, and then if we can get these images up, then I would like love to hear from you again. You bet. So um, Glenn Elzinger, um, rancher in the central Idaho mountains uh, with my wife and seven daughters. We own and operate Alder Spring Ranch. Um, it's a 46,000 acre uh, grass fed organic beef and um, Oh, sheep and hog operation. Um, and um, 46,000 acres is mostly dry grazing. Um, I'm, I was previously trained as a professional forester and a uh, firefighter um, in my uh, career before this one, before we kind of made the transition. And um, I think that was uh, now 20, you know, I guess it was about 22 years ago, we finally made that transition from being a professional forester to being a person who raises grass-fed organic beef. So it's been an interesting journey because I keep finding that these things are overlapping over and over again. And, you know, I'll be on horseback on that 46,000 acres with my cattle and I'll see all these problems that we originally resolved um, through fire or timber harvest. And um, so now it's this clash of this world um, kind of created this, this kind of artificial world in a sense created by the likes of Smokey the Bear and about 100 years of fire suppression. And it's created kind of a monster for us uh, in terms of, a, you know, a system that we actually try to do a lot of biomimicry. And, you know, we've kind of developed our grazing system to be a grazing ecosystem that's based on uh, the large ungulates that grazed our lands before us. And they happen to be bison. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because it, the fire interval, you know, when as a forester, we kind of determined what that fire interval, it was about 45 years. And now, you know, we're pretty aberrant on that going on about a hundred. And as a result, the fires 
that we do have are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're not only increasing in intensity, but they're also increasing in severity. Intensity is more of a measure of the pyrotechnic nature of the fire, um, you know, the physics principles, but the severity is something we can really um, feel because it, it speaks to what it's done to the ecosystem, what it's done to uh, the plants and animals that, that live in that place where fire came through. So we got touched exceptionally, um, well, an exceptionally close manner about two years ago, um, a lightning strike caused fire called the Rabbit Foot Fire, um, decided to ignite itself one August 8th, about um, two years ago, and it burned 36,000 acres and it spilled over the uh, mountain divide onto our rangelands, burning between eight and 10,000 acres. Um, and it, it's all in various varying degrees. Uh, we're still kind of unpacking the results of that. Uh, it's been a great learning experience, and uh, we can see how cattle and our grazing methods, how we do this biomimicry of bison, can fit into the results of that fire. And that, that's very, very exciting for us. Yeah, and it was it was super exciting for me, Glenn, to be there this um, summer and see that really in action. You know, you can read the brochure, but to actually be out on your place and, and see how, how it's possible to manage these landscapes. So inspiring. Thank you for that opportunity. So, Cole, tell us a bit about yourself. Hey there, everybody. Um, Brittany Cole Bush here. I'm in Southern California uh, in the Ojai Valley. Um, I'm grateful for being here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Y'all are superstars to me on the panel or on, in the conversation in the hallway. And um, shout out to all of our grass-fed exchange community. Um, we are all together in solidarity and it's really intense time. Uh, so I just wanted to acknowledge that and um, uh, grateful that we can kind of come together even if it's virtual. Um, for um, I've, I've been invited because I think I bring an interesting perspective to the conversation as a non-traditional agrarian, uh, someone who's worked. Uh, I was born in a fire ecology of North County, San Diego in Southern California and found my way into working in land stewardship with small ruminants for in targeted grazing, primarily my career uh, about 10 years uh, in the making was uh, founded in uh, the management of a commercial scale prescribed grazing business, targeted grazing or contract grazing, it's called as it's called here in California, uh, in the Bay Area, where we brought anywhere from 400 to 1200 plus um, in groups of 400 animals around the Bay Area for fire prevention um, measures in um, planned managed grazing uh, with sheep and goats. Um, my journey has led me to continue advocating uh, as a voice for a next generation of folks who really want meaningful and rewarding work on the land. And uh, I, I, I see as, as an advocate and a voice for, for others like myself who, who've don't come from ranching or agricultural in general. Um, we need pathways to be a part of the solution. 
And uh, that is what I am working to bring as a, a, an entrepreneur. And um, I am thrilled to say that I'm working to be a part of the solution and, and, and trying to, to grow my own herd. Um, I'm the owner operator of a new business called Shepherdess Land and Livestock Company, working to serve the Ojai Valley to increase community fire resiliency. And uh, this is the perfect place for me to do that. Um, the Ojai um, suffered devastation from the Thomas fire, which was uh, almost 300,000 acres in 2017 at the time, one of the largest in record history. As we know in the last month or so, uh, there have been many digits of fires that have surpassed the Thomas fire in scale. Uh, but it's been incredible to be a part of a community that has been really pulling together. And what I've seen is that cultural healing, cultural transformation, and our, perspe our perspective and perception, um, our transformation of how we, how uh, our relationship to how we perceive fire. And can we, can we together transform fear in fire into something that could ignite a lot of uh, impactful work and 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 meaningful jobs and um, social healing. So that's my two cents in introduction. Thank you. That's so inspiring to hear. And um, yeah, I just it's, it's an interesting time to be on the planet. So we are able to um, share slides now. So um, Charlie, if we can go back to um, you and hopefully you see this. You can see your slide? Great. So if you unmute yourself, um, I'm not very good at reading lips. <laughs> okay. On the left is Rod Mason, a senior lawman, a close friend of mine, and we work together a lot. Uh, he comes up and runs workshops here. He's one of the leading fire cultural burning teachers in Australia. And on the right is uh, Victor Stephenson from way up north of Queensland on the Barrier Reef in that uh, sort of savannah tropical country. He, he's just written a, a brilliant book on burning and he learned from the last of the two really knowledgeable elders. And um, might go down the next slide, I think. We can, yep. That's just an example of burning up in the tropics. Um, Usually, preferably uh, in the cool season, not at the end of what's called the dry, when it does devastating damage. Next one, please. Uh, and on the left, you can see country up there that's been burnt and, and how they do it with a dip torch. It's got to be done at the right time of day, the right humidity uh, and different stages of vegetation. Uh, it looks devastating, but uh, the transformation especially if it's done just before or just after rain is, is quite astounding. Uh, next, next slide. That's Rod Mason again, uh, running a workshop at home in a grassy woodland. Um, and the final slide before I just describe a couple of things. Yeah, so that's again, the workshop at home in that sort of country, grassy woodland that we know now from leading research by um, CSIRO, one of our leading uh, ecological uh, research agencies in Australia, that 
if we burn in our autumn, which for us is uh, April, May, uh, you can get four or five times more uh, regeneration of seed, proper gills, epicormic shoots, etc., than you'll get in the spring. So a lot of our country is adapted to a cool fire at the right time of year, particularly in the autumn. Uh, that's in the, the southern country. So it's, it's, it's uh, Victor Stephenson you saw when he is burning country, culturally burning up north, he goes in barefoot. So that says a lot about the sort of heat that's being generated. Uh, he can wander around soon after that sort of burning that you can see with Rod. Um, and look, this, this sort of, um, I'll answer that question from Scott in a sec. This sort of teaching and burning is now being seen as a critical management uh, tool by uh, regenerative farmers and it's starting to catch on. Uh, no, uh, we don't necessarily burn every year. I, I'll come back to the point that I made earlier. It, the reason what we call controlled or prescribed burning fails is because the authorities have to lock in a set window and with bureaucratic time constraints, they burn at the wrong time. Whereas indigenous people and we farmers are on country. And uh, if you see country that, uh, that needs a gentle burn or a cool burn at the, towards the end of the day, you're in position to, to do that. And uh, quite often at the end of the day, when there's a switch over in carbon dioxide um, going into the soil and, 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 uh, and then just on dark, the, uh, the dew and the moisture comes up and layers, layers the country. It, it's interesting that the indigenous people had worked out that was a good time to burn as well. I just wish we had all our little digging marsupials to spread the fungus, but uh, I think through ecological grazing, as we get the microhazal fungi back, uh, we can partly correct that, that uh, drastic loss. Wow, thank you, that's fantastic, Charlie. So I can share your photos now too. Glenn, if you wanted to describe what we're looking at here. Oh, sure, yeah. So there's been, um, you know, especially with the, the fires happening in, in California and throughout the world, um, you know, and especially with the homes and businesses and impacts to people's lives, you know, it's been, just an incredibly horrific situation. So I, you know, first of all, my heart goes out to those people that are that are in those situations right now. Um, you know, we, we've only lost grazing land. We, we didn't lose any cattle. We didn't lose any people. We didn't lose any structures, um, you know, but you, you still feel invaded um, when fire comes and unexpectedly, uh, remove something off your docket that you were planning on, um, you know, but, but there's no way I can even, you know, get a picture in my mind's eye of what it's like to lose your home. And, you know, so, so it's put fire at the forefront of all of us and the media has done that. And it's okay because we kind of need to know what's going on with our friends and neighbors in other parts of the country. Um, and so with that, we see this other thing that's starting to happen and it's been very interesting to me to see it develop. I, I first saw it on Facebook and, and uh, so it's, um, it's cattlemen who are saying, Oh, you know, we, we need more uh, livestock grazing impacts to actually get 
a handle on these fires and stop them. And what Brittany Cole Bush is doing, you know, is is like actually completely appropriate in my mind in terms of trying to, um, you know, create fire lines. And I'm sure she's going to talk more about that, create uh, grazing impacts that then we could burn against or prevent uh, fire from going into uh, these sorts of impact areas. But I, I took this picture the other day because Carol and I and my wife were walking through that forest and we said, you know, how could you apply cattle grazing in this situation, which is kind of definitive of what, what most of the forests look like in the Intermountain West. And it isn't only the logs that I think of, you know, getting through. And we've actually grazed areas like this, but there's no grass um, in these high altitude forests. And, you know, it's really actually inappropriate to say, oh, we're going to control fire with livestock. And you can go to the next slide, Nicole. And this is what would happen if we categorically did that. Um, we'd see cattle using areas like this, which is immediately adjacent to the forest I just walked through. And this is a wet meadow and it's, uh, you know, it has, you know, as native grazers, occasional elk, uh, occasional moose, occasional um, like uh, mule deer using this, but no extensive grazing. These are very small wet meadow areas. So if we did put cattle in these areas, they would obviously impact these areas. Uh, to the point where I think we'd actually start changing community types in, in, in an adverse way. We'd affect habitat. So it's certainly not appropriate in, in a lot of habitats in the West. For instance, I looked at the August fire, which is this fire in California right now. Um, and I just brought it up on Google Earth and actually looked at it um, with a satellite overlay. And my guess is the August fire, which is the largest fire in California right now, it's over a million acres, um, is probably 95% timber vegetation and largely inappropriate for extensive grazing use. And there's so much underbrush in forests like that. And there's so many ladder fuels from years of fire suppression that, um, you know, it's probably inappropriate to say oh, we could fix this with grazers and we could stop a fire such as the August fire with grazing. Go ahead to the next slide, Nicole. This is on um, our livestock grazing range. Uh, this is in the North Fork of Hat Creek. And I don't know if you can see it on this slide, but um, it, it's complete. It's complete, we call this a catastrophic fire, a catastrophic stand replacing fire. Um, and, uh, Oh, that's a great question. We'll talk about that. So it's a wholesale devastation. Everything's been burned to a crisp. And what's even happened, you know, Charlie Massey was talking about the fungi um, in these systems. As near as I could tell, everything biologically is completely wiped out. I did some digging in soil pits in here, and it just feels like it's this kind of glay layer. And Nicole, you and I have talked about this. It essentially turned into baked pottery on top. And you're, you're seeing overland flow, um, you know, course across these areas. Water can't even um, get through here. And it's because the fuel loading was so high in these high altitude forests that um, it was just complete. It was a complete fire. We don't do a lot of grazing up here, but I thought it was very interesting that you can have fire so hot that um, biologically, you're toast, and um, it's going to take a long time to regenerate those kind of forests. Go ahead, Nicole. 
Go ahead, next slide. Oh, we skipped one there, I think. Well, no, it's a, yeah, this is, this, this is actually in that same drainage. This is the North Fork of Hat Creek. And here you can see the, the converse of what I was just showing you. Here is a creek and here you have pretty hydric soils, but you had a living soil sponge. There was a lot of vegetation around this creek before the fire came along. And uh, we can learn something from this. And when you have this vegetation, you have a living soil sponge that has a lot of resiliency. So it, it, this, these two images kind of really spoke to me about how we manage cattle in those areas and how we can actually create resilient forests and resilient ranges by how we manage our cattle. And it's about building that living soil sponge that Walter Yenny talks about you know, to, to a thing that's going to retain moisture, it's going to retain life, and these things are going to be very, very resilient after a fire. Go ahead, Nicole. And here you can see an example. Of it. This is my daughter, Linnea, on the little mare in front of us here. And this, again, is pretty much a wholesale burn area. You can see there's a lot of ladder fuels that cause uh, fire to go up here. And incidentally, I saw that question about ladder fuels. You know, here, um, cattle won't graze those because it's all coniferous. Um, so there was no prevention of um, fire from getting into the crown here because there was extensive ladder fuels. Once fire had crossed those understory areas, it would just be conducted immediately to the overstory. And it was a wholesale crown fire here. But what's interesting is after two years, we have almost 100% ground cover. And it's because I believe um, this is an area that we've, uh, done our grazing system on where we graze uh, something in average of every three to four years. And so there was a ton of resilience built into this understory area because we had just vigorous vegetation in high biodiversity and we had soil life and a soil sponge which held all these things together. And Nicole actually came out and did some soil sampling with us on these kinds of north aspects and son of a gun we found that you know we had two times the organic matter two times the soil life in places yeah. like that where we were doing intermittent high intensity grazing um you know with very short durations and long periods of rest in between and so you know that was exciting to me because we're seeing the results of management on those areas, of herding, of intensively herding, and uh, managing those areas very kind of specifically to try to create resilience, and unknowingly we created fire resilience. Yeah, yeah, it, it's just extraordinary. So I thought what I'd like actually would be great, uh, Cole, if you would respond to that, um, to some of these points around the grazing and the animals, and we've had some really good questions coming through, and I thought. I'll just allow you to, to, to share what you've got to share and then let's um, dig into the, some of these questions. But some of the questions have asked, wouldn't goats make more sense since they're browsers? And um, yeah, wh what is the role? And I think you've kind of pointed to that quite well, Glenn, but I'll hand it to you, Cole. Yeah, um, this is great. This is really great. Uh, absolutely. Fire, fire ladder and goats um, and, you know, ruminants in general. Um, fantastic. They do a great job at that. I want to come back to context. Context is everything and prescri prescribed burns and prescribed grazing or the combo 
they work in the right context. And sometimes we, we have to learn and adapt. Um, so I don't, I don't think, I don't like to give blanket answers first off because I'm not an expert in anything. I'm just, I'm just an experimenter and practitioner and a crazy goat lady. Um, but in my experience, um, and also, you know, as a business, we get hired to do that very thing is we can raise that ladder, the fire fuel ladder, anywhere from four to six feet. Um, you know, they, they stack on top of each other. If you've ever seen goats stand on top of each other, they will do it for some good forage. Um, so that the answer to that was absolutely, um, but context is always a key thing to take into consideration and also the goals of what you're trying to do. Um, forgive my pixelated uh, photographs. These photos were taken ancient, like beginning of time Instagram era. Uh, so <laughs> the quality uh, is this. I, I selected just a couple uh, images of many of the kind of crazy hairball areas in which we've managed grazing. Um, this particular job was with Caltrans, uh, the Department of Transportation of California, uh, to, um, uh, to create a, a fuel break next to the highway. Um, very, very, uh, very wise and wild uh, way to, to do this type of work. And as you can imagine how much of this uh, highway roadside there is that needs to be with vegetation that needs to be managed. There's a lot of work. And I can't even imagine how many goats would be required to do all the California's highways. Hey, well, that will lead me into one of my big, my, my big proselytizations, which is, can we create a whole department <laughs> of grazers as ecological doctors? And that's taken from a couple of my mentors. I think that there's a future where there will be many, 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 many ruminants doing this work as we more proactively need to be managing uh, and, and stewarding um, open spaces and uh, developed spaces, um, the periphery of popul more populated areas. Um, here's another pixelated image from long, long ago. Um, and this is, uh, you know, this is your exciting uh, homeowners association goat grazing job. It's really cool because these jobs generally are multi-year so, and we do one path. And just like Glenn, we do not on horseback, but with these crazy electric netting, which is uh, an art in itself to do, um, <laughs> is, is we come in once and it's high density, uh, low duration, um, we prescribe, we prescribe the species that we want to use. Here we have hair sheep and goats. That's because of the type of forage uh, we have in a lot of these areas. We have forbs, we have grasses, we have understory of trees. The sheep and goats together, especially focusing on breed, I wouldn't put high country, you know, wool sheep on these jobs, uh, but I would put some hair sheep in there. Uh, next slide. This is an, another cool um, image. If you scroll down a little bit so you can see the, um, or up a little bit so you can see the dense populated area, I believe that's Fremont um, of the East Bay, the Bay Area of California. And those sheep and goats are in a public park. 
And uh, I, I like to share, share this with um, livestock operators who don't live in the cities or around cities, just to show them what we crazy folks in California and other places are doing um, in these higher populated areas. I think that it's important to share these photographs because the, it's not just the impact. You can't see what we did on this project. But what you, you can see is because we're so close to populated areas, one of the biggest um, pieces uh, that I love about this is education, public education. People get to see the interaction of animals on these landscapes. And that me, I'm talking about proselytizing again, that to me is so exciting to be out there and to talk with people about the relationship that we have with animals that they have with the land and how grazing or uh, livestock um, in, in, in carefully managed ways can do fantastic things in, in both positive ecological impacts and also public safety. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I think we're just finishing up my slides. I have plenty of these crazy wild city urban slides of goats and sheep and that. But you can see on the top of that hill, this is actually a video. And in the video, <laughs> you can see that this, this walker is probably experienced being around animals in this park before. The East Bay Regional Parks District has been employing contract grazing or grazers uh, for over a decade now in response to um, fires in the late 80s. And uh, this walker just straight up goes into this thousand, I think the seven, a band, I think it's 700 head. Maybe Glenn, you would be able to say that. <laughs> uh, but they, they, they just walk right on through and the animals just go right around them. And it just made me so happy. I was like screaming like, it's okay, just stand still. And they, they just, they, they knew the drill. They just knew the drill. So um, I'm a large proponent of animals and populated areas so we can start changing perspective of livestock, um, degrading the land. We got to change that to animals are our friends, livestock are friends and are a tool, not the only tool, but a tool that are incredibly impactful and efficient in the right context. Awesome. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. I tip my hat at you and what you're managing, really, Colin. There's a question here, um, which was asked to Glenn, but I think we could all discuss it. And it asked, how do you overcome the conflict between environmentalists and ranchers and timber people? It seems like there's many overzealous and litigious environmental groups that can't imagine any form of beneficial range in timber management. So how do we overcome this history? And I think... Um, Charlie, this is the same for you in Australia, you know, that whole fear of, of and I think Australia strikes me as being more ahead, would you agree, um, in terms of being able to have this conversation? They probably don't have the same litigious arm um, Americans like to roll out. Oh, Charlie, you're muted. I told you <laughs> I was the wrong date of birth. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't, know whether, I don't know if we're ahead, but um, I think uh, the, the secret is more and more exemplars that are 
described and written up to show the ecological benefits of executed grazing. Um, and that can be uh, sheep, goats, or in thick sort of scrub country, woodlands, you probably need cattle to bust through to open it up for the smaller ungulates, that sort of thing. But um, I think you can't, it's very hard in environmental issues to win an argument uh, through a debate. Uh, it's nothing like showing and telling and then getting some scientific evidence to explain it rather than head to head stuff. Yeah, I mean, Glenn, you had an interesting experience when the fire came through. Um, you could really see the benefit of it because it was late season, cool burn, was moving like little fingers down the hillside, and, and you really argued that they should let it go. And um, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> it was not to happen. You know, I think it's all about context again. Um, and I think if we can bring people back into a prehistoric context in, in terms of, you know, what did nature do before we came along and screwed it all up, you know? So um, there's some really big screw ups that we have to overcome, obviously, you know, I mean, you got, you know, the coastal foothills in California with an estimated 900 exotic species that have occupied California since uh, um, settlement contact. And that makes things very difficult, you know, when, uh, you know, you're dealing with non-native species and you're, you're dealing with perennials on the, you know, either have disappeared or extirpated or they're on the decline. So those are, those are hard questions that you got to get your brain around to get back into that context. But I think still first we have to get back into what happened in this situation, what happened in this natural environment before we came along. And, you know, for us, we go back to who are the grazers um, where, where was the ignition sources? What did the forest look like? What did our rangelands look like? And we try to reconstruct all those, you know, and you can go into historical accounts. You can, um, you know, you can find bison skulls up on our range. You can obviously find fire scars on tree rings and whatnot. And uh, you can kind of assemble uh, indigenous um, data sets and find out how often um, natives you know, native people for thousands of years um, have been lighting fires even um, without lightning ignition. You know, so when we put all those things together and then we try to do biomimicry to try to regenerate these landscapes back into those systems, I think that's really the key. We just have to go back to what nature did and try to reconstruct that first and then try to pull it off and regenerate it and restore a lot of these, you know, native lost landscapes that are now annuals back into native vegetation. I think what Cole's doing in California is like incredible because, you know, I see the same opportunity, even with cattle. We were in Santa Rosa at the grass fed exchange here, um, you know, a couple springs ago. And uh, I had a friend of mine who lived in Santa Rosa and I can't, I, I I was so blown away. I had never seen anything like this. He lived in a subdivision on the uh, west side of Santa Rosa and his house was there. And I looked at the back window of the house and all there was, was um, concrete curbing and asphalt. And then these vacant lots that were just trashed. And I couldn't even put it together. I was so blown away. I said, what happened here? 
And he said, well, this was a this was a fire. This was a wildfire that swept across subdivisions in Santa Rosa. It's happening right now, by the way. It's happening again. And, you know, I looked at the adjacent grasslands, those annual grasslands, and what Cole's doing with the goats, I, I'm like, holy cow, we could even do this with cattle, with people on horseback, with some creative hot wire. There's incredible opportunities. So it's not only a thing of, hey, let's go back to nature and look, take a look at those lessons. It's yeah. like, hey, environmentalist friend, we can use our animals to keep your home safe. Yeah, we could bring it right in our backyard and say, we can use these animals you hate to see on extensive grazing lands to keep your home safe, your property safe, your family safe. And that's exciting stuff. And I think the, the question that you pose is like thinking about what did these environments used to look like? And every single early account that we can find in from Australia, the US, and even in New Zealand, they talk about these mosaic patterns that fire was really creating these mosaics. And now it's almost like there's this perception that forest is the end. Forest is natural. Forest is the climax. Yeah. You should have yeah. dense forest. And you drive around Australia and, and, and California and it's like these trees are so close to each other and they just look like you know, weeds. And it's like, how, how do we get back to changing people's eye? Like this, where is the open savanna where you have, you know, a few trees, the grassland around it. We need to, train people in that cultural 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 I, yeah i was just i was just answering uh glenn of course i was listening to you i can multitask <laughs> <laughs> um i was just answering a comment from walter uh lori about public intervention and that exposure um i think it's so it, the Having urban grazing, for example, the exposure that people get to have, they start having more understanding and can connect the dots of, of uh, our participation on the land. And I think that's the same with food and fiber production. The more exposure and understanding and enlightening that folks get, the better. Um, and also people especially the millennial generation, we're all about experience and experiential learning and doing work that's diverse and different. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm so excited about the opportunities I see in the expansion of the workforce of folks doing this work. The animals have to be managed and managed intensely and it's expensive and it's high risk and it takes a lot. But uh, Glenn, I wanted to ask you a question in, in our conversation. I mean, how, how, how much social media interest or emails do you get from folks being like, I want to herd on horseback. Like, can I come or can I, like, are there opportunities? I did. I did. <laughs> you know, I mean, how many? I get the same thing of people being like, I want to be an urban shepherdist. Like, how? I'm like, first off, it's like one in every 500 people can hang in this work. Um, exactly. <laughs> but but there, there needs to be, we need more grazers, right? So there needs to be more opportunities to know if they got it or not. Is sheep in their blood or not? If they, you know, I, so I'm going to keep on pounding back to this cultural thing. People need exposure. People need opportunities. 
Mm. I have a dream and a vision in, in Los Angeles. There's this awesome community of folks in Compton and the east side of LA who are urban cowboys. Uh, there's urban, there's, it's called Urban Saddles. And then there's another group, um, the Compton Cowboys. And I'm thinking, you know, they're riding around their neighborhoods, urban, urban, and dense, dense, dense. But it's, it's, it's seemingly a growing, there's growing interest as they get more exposure. Mm -hmm. There's open spaces around Los Angeles, vacant lots primarily, that, mm -hmm. that need tending to, that is not dependent on, you know, chemical spraying and our fossil fuel, loud, annoying mowers. I mean, living I lived in uh, LA for two years recently, and it just, for probably six months out of the year, it's just, it's just like the worst. So, you know, there's a lot of things to, to, to iron out for a future where there are smaller scale regionalized herds that are doing this work. But I'm telling you, in Southern California, cities all over the place are working, are creating RFPs. They don't even know how to write the bids. They have no idea. But mm -hmm. they're writing the bids saying, we want grazers. And yeah. so we need that demand. And so um, that was a question I wanted to throw to you is, do you get interest? And then at the, when you get in, there was a question, Glenn, did you get that? <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, and your daughter and your daughters. And I want to hear about your daughter's participation because they are like self as a next, next generation as a part yes. of the, yeah. The boys not in saddle as much as they used to be, but you know, the thing you bring up, you know, sure. There's a lot of like cursory interests, you know, so then we got to filter through that. So we get about 70 applicants a year um, and we don't even advertise very much, but we changed it from a paid position uh, to this year. It was an internship position where we just paid a stipend, uh, gave them a place to live and provided them, you know, saddle and those kind of things and all the training they need to get it done. So actually we had more qualified applicants when we started doing that than we did paid positions so um yeah those people are out there and as fred Provenza, and i know you talked to fred about this um you know in uh, france and italy and spain they actually now are forming schools institutions oh, yeah. of learning that just train people to herd just train people to be a shepherdess or a shepherd of you know either cattle goats or sheep and they go out with a certificate and they have expert status. And I think, I think we need to get there because, you know, if I'm going to graze along I-5 with my cattle on horseback, I better dang well know what the heck is going on as far as stockmanship and as far as, you know, handling my horse, handling those cattle, handling hot wire. I better dang well be a journeyman expert before I just turn my animals along I-5. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it requires a ton of expertise, not only in just getting the cattle put there and getting the cattle to stay there, but getting to be, to, to be effective, both in terms of, you know, what the objectives are in terms of vegetation and fire control in terms of fire break causation, but also in terms of animal productivity. I mean, you got to keep your animals alive, right? 
You want to keep them gaining weight efficiently so that they can move on to the next meal and the next job, essentially. You know, So there's a lot of complexities there, and I'm really excited because I think that we're on the brink of creating something really cool. And, the, the and what's kind of interesting, I was just thinking what's interesting about the grazing aspect and what Cole's bringing is there's so many concerns about air quality. So if we're talking about fire stick farming and burning understories and burning forests, you've got people in the city that are already dealing with water uh, air quality issues. So I wonder, Charlie, is that conversation happening around air quality? Or people having such big fires now in Australia, we have to do something. It, it is, uh, particularly after last summer with those Holocaust fires, those mega fires. Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, ourselves and uh, further south near Canberra, we were uh, surrounded by them. It was at least eight or nine weeks where we didn't see the sun. And if you think of all the chemicals you're imbibing, um, <laughs> It's only been an increasing mm -hmm. issue, but uh, if I could just pick up a couple of comments. I saw Russ Concert ask me, um, what's the most sort of lateral intuitive thing I've picked up from Indigenous burning? What I've learned yes. from our elder is they are very skillful at laying down different types of charcoal for different reasons. So charcoal from an older eucalypt tree is quite different to a what we call a tea tree, a melaleuca which is a fine ash, and they will lay it down for specific purposes uh, if it's in a gully or on a hill or out in grasslands. And uh, there's really a fine grain to their sorts of skills, if, and, and they'll know when to lay that type of charcoal or ash down at a different time. The other point I was just thinking about lateral stuff, and we, the panel discussed it briefly. Uh, one of the experiences of this last summer when, when, when you get big forest fires and eucalypts, uh, you've got all the volatile gases that start to explode and you get firestorms and fireballs. And I know of three or four instances where, and that's when the eucalypt canopy is crowned as, as this explodes across igniting the gases. And I know of three or four instances where those crowning fires have run into oak or silver poplar plantations and instantly drop to the ground uh, because of the moisture in those canopies. And so what we're doing at home now, we've just planted um, six or 7,000 acorns with the right microhousal fungi from about 20 different oak species, which do well in Australia. And so that's with an eye to our grazing system. We want a sort of silver pastoral system with the acorns, but you're talking about nutrients cycling uh, you're talking about shade and you're talking about fire prevention uh, in judicious planting. So that's another thing that's sort of come out of these recent fires and the lessons we're learning. And ironically, we're using some California oaks to do it. Yeah. That's what I just think is so fabulous. It's like we're talking about having native adapted plants. So in New Zealand, because, you know, I mean, we can come back to all of these issues around management, but we're also dealing with the double whammy of climate change and seeing um, the impacts from land management in terms of the lack of hydration of landscapes and the more extreme highs. And so even New Zealand, so as a New Zealander, here I am talking about fire, but um, we're seeing more and more extreme fire events. And what they've found is one of the best 
fire breaks is the native vegetation. So ensuring that you have native vegetation as fire breaks between forestry blocks. And um, yeah, I just think, it, you know, looking to what is adapted. And so it's interesting to me that you're planting oaks, <laughs> Charlie, when, yeah, I mean, yeah, eucalypts are so explosive when you, when, when you look at them under pressure. Um, so there was a question from Gwen Grillet who asks you, Charlie, is prescribed burning for the country used everywhere in Australia or is it just certain states? Um, it's a hard one to answer. Uh, Northern Territory, which is probably one of the largest states with a, a really challenging build-up of dry feed by the end of what they call the dry season. Uh, I don't think there's any uh, authorities doing plan burning there. It's usually the initiatives taken by in Indigenous people or, or, or uh, farmers tend to light up at the wrong time of year, which is the end of the dry season, which really cooks the soil, biology, etc. So, uh, and the rest of it's sort of a, a mishmash um, by authorities. But the trouble is uh, none of it's well executed because of the uh, bureaucratic type of issues I discussed before. They're, they're constrained to burn at the right time when you're on country. Yeah. Um, there's a question saying, with those Californian oaks, are you also looking at truffle production? So a win-win from fire management. Yeah, we are. And uh, different types of mushroom, um, just to spread our uh, enterprise diversity as well. Yeah, that's exciting. Well, you'll be seeing me in another 10 or 15 years banging on your door. I love truffles. <laughs> <laughs> Little truffle pig. Um, there's a question for you, Brittany. How many goats and sheep are doing um, grazing management and what, what does that look like? How many head to properly manage the fire risk? I, I was just, I just typed a, a, an answer, but I will, I'll just say. You're multitasking, yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, again, it's all context. Um, the largest operator that I know of in California operates about 8,000 head. He, uh, they work with, uh, he and his wife work with uh, H2A uh, Peruvian herders to manage each herd of 400 up to 700 head based off of the scale of the job. Some government jobs, uh, forest, um, forestry jobs, large animals, uh, oil fields. Uh, there's, all, there's all kinds of larger scale, but there's also neighborhood based smaller jobs that you can't run 400 head through there very easily, nor would you want to because they might have only 10 acres and you'd rip through that with the 400 head pretty quickly. So um, it just really depends on your, your context as a producer or an operator. If you are a fiber flock operator whose your main focus is uh, producing wool, producing fiber and wool and you need more access to land well there's really cool pro projects that are igniting a woman named sarah kaiser up in um northern california who works with the fiber shed organization she's developing a uh, a, a certain scale of a community supported grazing program that actually has producers working with their neighbors to uh help with the uh, rotational grazing from property to property of contiguous land. Um, you, get, you get some labor help, of course you have to train them, um, but that allows her 
it allows her and other folks she's training it to, to have more access to land. And the benefit is the fire prevention from the prescribed grazing. That's one scale and that's small. You know, I think that's only 30 sheep or so. So this, this scale is yeah. big. We're seeing something similar here in Montana with um, a lot of absentee landowners. And so collective ranches getting together to manage their livestock across the landscape. So, you know, looking at contiguous landscapes, which I think is really neat. You know, it's land that's not being managed. They're probably going to mow, you know, a hundred acres with their ride on lawnmower instead of actually we could, we could do livestock through here, which is kind of cool. So we've only got a few minutes and I feel like I want to keep talking to you guys, but if we have one minute each. What would be your kind of real take home message around reframing fire? I, I'm going to jump in because I'm excited about it and I'll do it one minute. I think that the change <laughs> in the reframing is going to start grassroots. It's going to start community based. Mm -hmm. And as we shift cultural perspective around fire, it's going to be communities needing to pull together for, to create more resilience. I'm talking in circles, mm -hmm. but I just go back to the grassroots um, model. And in urban or more populated areas, especially in California, community supported grazing programs where folks mm -hmm. all come in to support this prescriptive grazing for preventative measures is um, that that's the way I see this spreading. And there, we didn't get to, to get into it, uh, but post-fire grazing um, and also uh, post-prescribed fire grazing and, and the pairing of prescribed fire with prescribed grazing. And um, one last piece, I'm so close one minute, is I keep no, you're hearing, not. You're so not. Training, <laughs> training keeps on coming up. This is a highly skilled knowledge and wisdom is required. That takes time. And that can only be done through experience and through passage of wisdom. So I, my, my life thesis right now is figuring out how can we create an infrastructure in our context in the United States where we don't have universal health care. We have student loans and a lot of debt and high cost of living. All right, I'm going to pass it on. Okay, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We need to train <laughs> more folks Grab it all. Hey, good. Yes. Glenn, go. Sorry, Glenn. <laughs> okay, so reframing fire, I think it basically has to do with um, we're going to have to go through some growing pains to reframe. And it's because things yeah. are really messed up. We've, we've really kind of screwed things up with Smokey the Bear and uh, fire suppression. And we're going to have to like bite the bullet and we're going to have to put up with some smoke, but we're going to have to come up with creative ways to bring back that natural fire paradigm. And as a result, you know, we might not be happy. Um, you know, Cole, Nicole, you're going to be probably happy because you're much younger than I am. But I know my uh, kids no, will be happy with the decisions we've made, you know, because, you know, and Charlie, too, you know, we're, we're probably too old to see the results of what we're going to start investing in now. I, there's a lot of work to do in reframing fire, and we've just got to get it done. We've just got to do the hard work of trying to recover those systems that are broken and trying to reboot those ancient ecosystems and those rhythms again which you're doing at your place. And I think people, there is that opportunity for people to come and learn from um, all of you. All right, Charlie. I see great hope for two reasons. Um, 
well-applied regenerative grazing and um, the introduction of increasing amounts of indigenous uh, cool season, cultural burning, whatever you want to call it, will bring back our fungi and will therefore rehydrate our soils and our landscapes and the vegetation on it. So uh, it's not as simple as that, but that's got to be the first step to start working with the vegetation and the fungi on the land yeah. and uh, mm. both cultural burning and culturally managed livestock. Cool. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I wasn't going to share any slides, but, but you know, it's, it's my party, so I'll share if I want to, but <laughs> I am. Um, I, I just wanted, I got permission to share this, so I thought, let's do it. Um, is thinking about, like, when we're talking about regenerative, is this concern, like, we've got too much fuel out there and this is going to cause the problem. So the property on the left is conventionally managed, um, not very well by the looks. On the right, regenerative. A big fire came through. There was lots of fuel, lots of heat. Um, this was during the Tinga fire, so a massive fire complex two years ago in Australia. Now what's super interesting to me is how these landscapes recovered. So you saw the dust storms coming out of Australia. Um, the dust storms stopped at their fence line. I'm not messing wow. with you at all. Dust wow. storms stopped at the fence line. So even though that fire was actually potentially hotter because there was more fuel, um, that biology, the fungi, that, that sponge is working, that hydration is working. And then check this out. You've got landscapes that are absorbing water making the most of every single drop and the neighbor looked like they were under a lake. So I think it's being proactive and really thinking fire is not a someday one day and there's no such thing as a fire season anymore. It's like, it's just fire. So let's be thinking proactively long-term, rebuild this sponge and get function back into our landscapes and stop sticking our heads in the sand about this issue because it's not going to go away. Um, I'm so grateful for all of you to make the time massively appreciate it that we could all get together. Um, there's some questions that have been asked. So um, what I'll do is I'll send that out to everybody. And if you want to send those answers back, I can um, put them on Facebook. Um, but thanks everybody for making this time. You guys are legends and I'm so inspired. So inspired. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Everyone Nicole. be safe and well. Keep safe. Well, well facilitated, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. Oh yeah, kicks and butts. Hey, no. <laughs> hey Thanks, I never, guys. I never did find a coffee in this hallway here. Where is it? Uh, uh, the coffee's part, down the corner to the right, but it but might give you part of a hallway conversation. A cup of coffee, and I'm missing that part. So I'm a little disappointed right now. <laughs> All right, you you need to come and visit me. I'll I'll make your coffee. Okay. <laughs> oh no! Right. Oh no! All right. Bye. Bye. All right, bye.